Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. We're continuing our study in the providence of God and, uh, and we're looking at Ruth, the story of romance and redemption. Ruth's name means beauty or glamour. So I guess that would be the, uh, she, would, she would be the, the, pay, the, the face that would go on the page of Glamour magazine. Uh, the, the time period I've noted in your, uh, in your notes there, this takes place sometime during the period of the Judges, which was between the 11th and 14th centuries uh, B.C. Remember that the, the book of uh, Judges comprises a time of about 400 years. You've got, uh, you've got uh, leadership under Moses uh, for those 40 years in the wilderness, and they come up to the point where they're about to enter the land. And then you've got a period under Joshua and the elders... Uh, who ruled with Joshua after they entered the promised land. And then after Joshua and the elders passed off the scene, there was a period that came up that was known as the period of the judges. And this, uh, this lasted for 400 years. It was during this time of the period of the judges that the story of Ruth takes place. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, of course, after the book of Judges, then that's, uh, that's when we see the, uh, the monarchy uh, under uh, Saul, David, and Solomon, which was, uh, obviously this is not to scale, but was a 120-year period. And then, of course, the, uh, the kingdom split at the, uh, at the time of, uh, of uh, Solomon's demise and uh, when his son Rehoboam was to assume the throne. But that's not for us to consider today. But to put Ruth in its historical context, just so we understand what we're talking about and where, uh, it was after the time of Moses, after the time of Joshua and the elders. The key phrase, and it's used twice in the book of Judges, is every man did what was right in his own eyes. It was a very decadent time. During this time, uh, such judges as Gideon and Samson and people like that, God raised up. Deborah was a judge, uh, raised up to uh, lead the people of Israel. But most of these, in fact, all of these judges essentially were regional type of judges. There was no judge who ruled over the entire nation of Israel. And in fact, what we're going to be looking at today, we'll draw our little geography up here. There's the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea. Here's the shoreline. This would be the Mediterranean. And what we're looking at today takes place essentially down here in the land of Judah and over here in the area called Moab, which was uh, east of the Dead Sea and Judah was to the west and slightly north of the, uh, of the Dead Sea. Um, but that's, uh, this is the area, the, the geographical area that we're going uh, to be considering today. Uh, a lot of intermarriage, I put that in your notes. Not only was there a lot of self-indulgence, everybody doing what was right in his own eyes, but a time of intermarriage. Remember, uh, just 
by nature of the time of the judges, since it was such a time of decadence, what happened is that the people, the uh, Israelites, began to intermarry with many of the Canaanites and the Amorites and other people who had remained here who were undefeated uh, uh, when Joshua and the children of Israel came into the land some years prior to that. Uh, when we get to Ruth chapter 1, and that's where we want to begin to look at now, we discover that it is a period of famine. Uh, a period of famine has occurred, and uh, we find uh, a character named Naomi who has moved over to Moab with her husband because of the famine in the land of Judah. Uh, and so let's, let's begin to read the story and draw some practical application as we can. Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And now the land is the land of Judah. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now it's interesting that uh, God had really essentially pronounced a curse on Moab and on the inhabitants of Moab so you wouldn't think that any self-respecting uh, Jewish person would go to this area, but uh, obviously times of need uh, cause us to do strange things sometimes. It says the man's name was Elimelech. Now the name Elimelech means God is my king. His wife's name, Naomi, Naomi means pleasant, and the names of his two sons, now you're going to love this, the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. Malan means unhealthy or sickly. Kilian means puny or wasting. Now, why would you name your children names like that? So let's name this one unhealthy and let's name this one puny. Uh, but it, I think it probably speaks of the time. Again, it was a very difficult time. Naomi and Elimelech had uh, moved over here to the land of Moab had, uh, uh, and their children were over here. It was a very difficult time. And while the children were over there, as they grew up, and apparently uh, they were there for a while because it says they, uh, uh, let's see, verse 2, <clears throat> they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. Now, what, does, uh, what had God said uh, in, the, uh, in the law through Moses about marrying out about Jews marrying outside the faith. You weren't supposed to do that. That was that was something that you weren't supposed to do. So here is a family who is essentially in willful disobedience. Uh, they they're down here obviously to, to keep uh, to keep body and soul together. But uh, marrying outside of the faith, it says they married uh, these two boys, uh, unhealthy and puny. Uh, Malan and Kilian married Moabite women, one named Orpah, now that's, that's not Ophrah, that's Orpah, which means uh, deer fawn, and the other Ruth, and we've already said that Ruth's name means glamour or beauty. And they had lived there about ten years. Both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So here's a woman who's in dire straits. She is out of, out of her own homeland. She's in a strange place. 
a place where God said you're not to have anything to do with the Moabites. In fact, Moabites can't even come into the assembly to worship. And so here, uh, here we've got a situation with, uh, with Naomi and uh, her two, uh, two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And so Naomi understands uh, the writing on the wall and tells both these girls, both of whom, neither of whom are Israelites, they're both uh, Moabites, uh, said what you need to do is you just need to go on back to your own people. And they uh, argue a little bit and she said, no, no, that's really what you need to do. Well, Orpah does that. She checks, uh, she, she, she is, uh, goes back to her people. She's kind of off the scene. Ruth says, no, I'm not going to do that. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go, and there I will be buried. So you see a, a, a real desire on the part of Ruth, the Moabitess, to link herself to Naomi and also to the, to the God that Naomi represents. Verse 6, when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Now, and this, that's uh, when all of this happened, when they had this discussion. Verse 22, so Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So the famine is over. The, uh, the fields are just full of grain. The uh, things are getting back uh, to some sense of normalcy over here in the land of Judah. It's interesting, though, and there's, there's obviously just not room in our notes to put all of the text, but one of the things that Naomi says when she comes back here, and everybody, you know, it's been 10 years plus since they've been there, and one of the things that the people say who knew Naomi before she left to go to Moab said, said, oh, it's, you know, it's really great to see you and you're looking good and how have you been doing? And her response was, don't call me Naomi anymore. Uh, don't call me pleasant. Instead, she said, call me Mara. And the word Mara means bitter. Now, what does that say had happened to her while she's been in Moab? Well, she's, she considers herself as having become bitter. Bitter why? because of the very difficult time that she's had. I mean, she's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. Uh, you know, she spent all these years in a land of strangers. It's just a very difficult time. And she says, no longer call me pleasant. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Instead, call me Mara. Call me bitter. And it seems like she's got a, a, a lousy attitude, and yet Ruth is still committed to staying with, with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, that's, that's, kind, of the, that's kind of the setting. That's, that's what's been going on. The story really begins to get interesting in Ruth chapter 2. It says, Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech. Remember, Elimelech is her late husband. A man of standing whose name was Boaz. Now, the word Boaz, the name Boaz means strength. In fact, that was uh, when Solomon constructed the temple there in Jerusalem, and that would be many years later. Uh, there were two major pillars, P-I-L-L-A-R-S, pillars in the temple, and one of those pillars was named Boaz, and Boaz means strength. And, of course, it was a reference to the strength of the Lord. 
<clears throat> she had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now what's that called? Anybody remember? What do you call that when the, the, the reapers come out and they just reap, that, they, reap the, uh, they cut down the grain and then they come along and they bundle it up but some little bits are left scattered here and there all over the place and then people come along and pick up those little bits and pieces to take home. What's that called? Gleaning, that's right. All right, good. It's called gleaning. So Ruth is out here gleaning in the field. She's just, she's following along behind, not getting in front of them, just picking up little stuff to kind of keep her and her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, well. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, now this is, I love this part of the sentence, verse 3. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now that's, that's the way the uh, New International Version translated. If you look just one space down from that, I put the New American Standard Version, that part of the verse in there, and the way it renders it is this, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Why this field? Why did Ruth, all of a sudden, as she's over here in Bethlehem, uh, which is just a bit south of, uh, of Jerusalem, uh, she's, uh, she's gleaning in the fields, and she discovers that she is in the fields of Boaz gleaning. Now, is this just a coincidence that she's there? No, it's not a coincidence. This is part of the providence of God, that God has provided this place for. God sees ahead of time. He's making perfect provision. He's going to provide for Ruth. He's going to provide for Naomi. And he's got Ruth at exactly the right place at exactly the right time to meet exactly the right person who is going to take care of her and her mother-in-law. Now let's see how it works out. Now see, And remember, that's the way the providence of God works. When God works, He works from both ends at the same time. We don't always understand what He's doing. We say, you know, what's going on? You know, is God out to lunch? Why isn't God doing something about this? And we think that God is not busy. God is not acting. And yet He is. He's busy. We don't always understand it. We can't always figure it out. But God has a plan and He's always on plan A. Verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth. Alright, so here's Ruth. She's out there gleaning. She's picking up the little tidbits of grain. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here <clears throat> with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you, and whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Now, now what does it sound like? Does it sound like Boaz has any sort of interest in this person, Ruth? Sure it does. What's he doing? He's providing for her already. He said, now look, you know, I don't want you going out here to somebody else's field. You could wind up getting raped. Any number of things could happen to you, especially since you were a foreigner in this country. You stay in this field. I've instructed the men who work for me 
not to touch you at all. They're to keep their hands off you. And listen, if you get thirsty, you don't have to go around and try to find you a clean place in a creek somewhere. You just go right up there and you can get one of those water bottles and you can get you a fresh, uh, cool drink of water anytime you want to. Don't you worry about that. Verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? You see, Ruth realized that what did Boaz really owe her? Nothing. And yet, Boaz is acting on her behalf. What is it that God owes us? Well, he sure doesn't owe us anything good. The only thing that God owes us is a one-way ticket to the pit. But the truth is, is that God is gracious and merciful to his people. He provides for us. He plans ahead. He's got everything prepared for us. Uh, again, we think of Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We don't understand that purpose, but He's working things out for His good. Verse 11, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland that is, Moab, and came to live with a people you didn't know before. I mean, you say, look, you came over here, we've got totally different customs, we've got a different kind of religion, and you've just been fully faithful to your mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, you've cared for her, you've watched out for her, and here you are out here today, not only gathering food for yourself, but gathering food to help, to continue to help care, uh, take care of Naomi. Verse 12. May the Lord, notice he invokes that, notice the word Lord there is in all caps, and that's the name Yahweh, that's the covenant name of God. May Yahweh, the Lord God, repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's interesting that that... Uh, uh, Lord, the God of Israel. It's, uh, it's very much like El Shaddai, the God who cares, the Almighty, the one who looks out for us, the one who holds us close to himself and cares for us. So again, he's saying, I'm glad you're here. Stay in my field. And he pronounces a benediction on her and says, may you come to know the true God. May he embrace you and protect you. May you find comfort under, as it were, his wings. Verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. And all of a sudden, Naomi speaks up. Well, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. And notice what else Naomi says. Oh, you know, Remember, what had Naomi said when she first got back? She said, don't call me pleasant anymore. You call me bitter. Because the Lord has treated me like dirt. That's essentially what she was saying. But notice, you see that, that God has used this foreign woman, this Moabitess, to work in the life even of Naomi at this part. Notice what, she, notice what he says. Verse 20, The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, That man, speaking of Boaz, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now that is an important phrase for understanding the book of Ruth. 
because that's where we've been headed the whole time. That term kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer. Uh, what is it? What is a kinsman? A close, a close relative, right? Uh, and a redeemer. Remember uh, from our, I think it was our study of uh, of Galatians. The word redeem means to purchase for a price. Remember we talked about, uh, those of you who were around during the time of the, uh, uh, when we talked about Galatians, we used to talk, uh, we used to have the S&H redemption stores where you'd save up 800,000 little books of green stamps and then eventually when you got a, a I mean, so many that the garage, you couldn't get the car in the garage anymore. Then you would take them all to the S&H Green Stamp Redemption Store and you would redeem them for a blender that you probably could have got at Sears for about $29.95 and wouldn't have had all that stuff in your garage. But you would redeem the, uh, the green stamps for some sort, of, uh, some sort of prize, like a blender or a toaster or something like that. Is the idea of purchasing for a price. So when the book of Ruth talks about a kinsman redeemer, it's a close relative who is going to perform some kind of purchase. He's going, it's going to cost him something uh, as a close relative to accomplish something. So what, what are these somethings that we're talking about? Well, that's what the rest of the story is about. Uh, in fact, if you look in the left-hand column of your notes uh, at this point, uh, notice I've got a, a little something there uh, under Roman numeral 2, uh, part C, about Leveret Law, and it's a quotation from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 9. Let's just take the time to, to read that for just a minute. It helps us under, it kind of gives us a little bit of background for what's going on. Now remember, this comes from Deuteronomy. So when was this written? Well, this was written right here at the end of Moses' life. That's when the book of Deuteronomy was written. Remember, Scripture is a, is a constant unfolding of revelation. When uh, the word Deuteronomy, uh, D-E-U-T-E-R-O-N-O-M-Y, Deuteronomy, uh, is made up of two major uh, words, Nami, uh, it comes from the word Latin word namas, which means law. And deuteros means the second. And so what Deuteronomy is, it's the second giving of the law. Remember in Exodus, uh, God, gave the, uh, God gave the law the first time at Sinai, way down here in the Sinai Peninsula, which would be off our board. But then after that wandering in the wilderness, remember that the children of Israel finally made their way up here to the plains of Moab. And this is where, uh, where God, uh, this is where they sort of uh, had, it was kind of a staging area where uh, Moses would pass off the scene, Joshua would become the chief person on the scene, and then under the leadership of Joshua would lead the children of Israel into the promised land. It's here at the plains of Moab that the book of Deuteronomy takes place. It's the second giving of the law. So, so the point I'm making is that this, if you think about it in terms of chronology, when we, when we talk about, when we read what we do in Deuteronomy, 
This is what God had already established under Moses, and now we're going to see an application of it years later during this time of the, uh, of the judges, specifically in the, uh, in the life of Ruth. All right, <clears throat> so that gives us a little chronology. Notice Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 9. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So uh, just like in this situation here, uh, you've got uh, the situation that Ruth has been in. I mean, the, the, the Naomi has uh, uh, had, had a husband. He died. You think that uh, the, the children, well, at least one of those boys of theirs, was going to carry on, but they both had, uh, had died as well, and it just looked like this, you know, who's going to carry on the family name? This was a provision for that. If there was another person in the family, a brother, he would come along and marry this person, and then the, and with God's help, the, when this woman bore a son, the name that they gave the son would be the name of the husband who had passed on, and that way his name would be continued in Israel. It wouldn't be blotted out. Verse 7, however, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, and I've known in talking about this passage with several folks, I've had a bunch of folks say, there is no way I'd marry my brother's wife. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what's done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. You say, that sounds like an odd thing. What this is, this was a way of publicly shaming someone. Take off the sandals, spit in their face, and say, you are a, you are a disgrace because you're not willing to do what, uh, what the law said that you're supposed to do. Now, notice under that passage I've written uh, something about the basic qualifications. And when you read all of this in its context in Deuteronomy and in other like passages, you discover that the person who would be the kinsman redeemer, the person who would be uh, the, the close relative who would redeem either uh, a person or a piece of land or whatever, and we're going to see that in the story of Ruth here in just a minute. Uh, there were three things, three qualifications that this person had to have. First of all, they had to have the right to redeem. That is, they, they had to be a close relative. You couldn't say, well, you know, I've got a third cousin that's living over in uh, Hayhira right now, and I think I could get him to cooperate. No, that won't work. You've got to have a real close relative, the right to redeem. Secondly, you have to have the ability to redeem. That is, you have to be able to. You've got to be able to afford to do that. Uh, and then thirdly, there's got to be a willingness to redeem. If you're not willing, then you are going to be subjected to public shame. Are you willing to be redeemed? And what we're going to see and the marvelous picture that we get, this is a true story and a wonderful story about Ruth and we'll see Boaz. And Boaz turns out to be the kinsman redeemer 
And Ruth is the one, as well as Naomi, who is redeemed. And what we discover is that Boaz has the right to redeem, he has the ability to redeem, and he is willing to redeem. And those things are all true of Christ regarding his people. He, and we'll talk more about that in, uh, in just a minute. Now notice, uh, notice what happens. Now, what happens at this point, uh, right before we get into, uh, right at the first of Ruth, ch- uh, Ruth chapter 3, is Naomi hears about this guy Boaz. And Naomi knows, remember, Naomi had come from this region. So Naomi knew who Boaz was and knew that he was a very close relative. And so Naomi gets all excited. And uh, Naomi begins to play the role of a matchmaker. She is going to do her very best to try to get Boaz and, uh, and Ruth together. But, of course, this is God's plan all along. Now, notice, uh, notice what happens. One of the things that, uh, that Naomi does is that she tells Ruth, she says, now you need to get out of your mourning clothes, not M-O-R-N-I-N-G, but M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. That is... Take off all those things that you're still mourning over uh, uh, the death of your husband back over here in Moab about your situation mourning having left your family. It's time to get out of your mourning clothes and get yourself all fixed up. And that's what she encourages Ruth to do. And Ruth does that. Ruth chapter 3, verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, now this uh, this is on the threshing floor later in the day. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, in these days, single women did not have the right to take any kind of initiative. Uh, You know, the days we live in today... uh, the, the, the men and the women both take lots of initiative as far as making advances toward each other. Not in this day. Um, marriages were generally almost always arranged. It was the men who took the initiative in those situations. But the one exception to that rule, according to the customs of that day, were that widows could take initiative toward remarriage. And that's essentially what Ruth is doing here. She wasn't doing anything... Uh, untoward, she wasn't doing anything that was wicked or anything like that. She uncovers the guy's feet. Now notice what happens. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. Now what do you think may have startled him? Doesn't tell us, but what may have startled him? If she uncovered his feet, what happens at night if your feet get uncovered? Your feet get cold, and you wake up, and it may be that that's it may be that that's what's going on. So, but something startled a man. Maybe a cat came through there. Well, you know, chasing a mouse. If there's a lot of grain around, you're going to have mice around. Something startled a man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Now, essentially what she was saying was she's saying, I am available to be wed to you. You're my close relative. I am willing for this to happen. She was taking the initiative, and that was perfectly legitimate for her to do so. Notice what happens. Verse 9. Who are you? He asked. Now, now why would he... He's had this conversation with her out in the field earlier in the day. Why would he possibly ask a question like this right now? Who are you? 
Why would he ask that question? If this is at night, what's it like? It's dark. He can't see your face. All he knows is all of a sudden he's startled. He's, he's been working hard all day. He wakes up something startling. There's this woman that's lying at his feet and, uh, and essentially and with his feet uncovered. So the idea is I'm willing, I'm ready. And he says, who are you? It's dark. He don't know who she is. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment. Now remember, she had uncovered his feet, so his garment was over to one side. It was off his feet. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. Essentially, what this widow Ruth was doing was she was suggesting a marriage proposal to Boaz. Verse 10. The Lord bless you. Now, we already know that uh, Boaz was looking, at fa looking with favor at Ruth anyway. I mean, all the things he has done for. But he says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. This indicates that, uh, that Boaz was not necessarily a young man himself, but was an older gentleman. Verse 11, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin. Remember, you had you to be a close relative. Although it's true that I'm near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. In other words, yes, we're close relatives, but there's, some, there's somebody else who's just a little bit closer. It's kind of like, cousins and first cousins and second cousins and you know we kind of developed pecking order here so that's what he's talking about verse 13 stay here for the night then there's no inference of any kind of weird stuff going on stay here for the night and in the morning if he wants to redeem good now remember you, there's got to be a willingness to redeem if he wants to redeem good let him redeem but he if he is not willing as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. He, Boaz said, I am willing. Lie here until morning. All right. So his, his response to Ruth is what? Yes, I'm willing. Yes, I'm able. And yes, I do have the right because I'm a kinsman redeemer to you, although there is one a little bit closer and he has to get the first shot. All right, that brings us to Ruth 4. This, boy, this is, this is, see, this is better than a, than a soap opera on Tuesday afternoon. Verse 1, when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along. Now, what they've done is they've gathered at the city gate. The city gate's kind of like the town hall. That's where business was transacted in those days. The elders and the city officials would line up there at the gates, and if somebody had a grievance against somebody else, if somebody wanted to do business, they would come to the gates, and there were elders and officials who were there to bear witness to all the events that were going on. So this is the location here. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. 
but if you will not, tell me so I'll know, for no one else has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. I will redeem it. He said, oh, say, oh no, the love story just, oh, phooey. We thought Ruth and Boaz were going to get together, and this other guy says, okay, I'll do it. Oh, phooey. I'll redeem it, he said. Now, now Boaz says, well, well, there is a codicil here, so I need to fill you in on this. Verse 5, Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. In other words, you're going to be, it's going to be your responsibility as the kinsman redeemer to do your utmost to get this woman pregnant in order that she can have a son and that son can be named after the father so that the lineage can be carried on. So uh, verse, uh, verse 8, At this the kinsman redeemer said, Whoa, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. Now, could it, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but it's possible that this guy already had a number of sons had everything all divided up and now all of a sudden if he's going to take if he's going to buy this piece of land he gets this woman Naomi and Ruth along with this piece of land he's got a responsibility to raise up children through this woman Ruth and what that's going to do that's going to add to the number of descendants he has and so that's going to mean uh, all these children over here who have already figured out, well, you know, we're going to get one-sixth of what dad's got. Now, all of a sudden, there might be one, two, three, or four more kids over here. He says, uh-oh, now instead of getting one-sixth, you're going to get one-tenth. He said, whoa, I can't do that. That's going to foul up my estate. Can't do that. Verse 9. And at this point, the guy took off his sandal, the Scriptures tell us. Now, that's not in your text. There wasn't enough room. Verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malan's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you are witnesses. And they all responded, said, Yes, we are witnesses. That made it official. It was done at the town gate. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And verse 16 tells us, Then Naomi took the child, that is, the child that uh, Ruth had born. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What a great story, because we see that out of disobedience and leaving the land of Judah, going to a forbidden place, living among a group of forbidden people, you know, if we'd been God, we'd have just said, let's just mark them all off. It just serves them right. Whatever happens to them, let's just leave them alone. But in the kind providence of God, God has set his affection not only on Naomi, but also on Ruth and brought them back to exactly the right place at exactly the right time to meet exactly the right man, Boaz, in order to accomplish his purposes 
And as a result of the union of Boaz and Ruth, there came to be a child named Obed who later would marry, who would bear a child named Jesse, who later would marry, who would bear a number of sons, the youngest of which was named David, who would become the greatest king that uh, the United Monarchy had ever known and uh, a real picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in the conclusion there that uh, one of the applications that we make is that what we've been talking about foreshadows the truth that both Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs in Christ. I think it's interesting clearly that in, in our story here, if we were to use typology where things represent other things, certainly there's no question that Boaz as the kinsman redeemer, is really a, uh, a type of Christ who is, uh, who is willing and, and able and has the right uh, to redeem. Uh, Naomi represents really God's people among the Jewish people. Remember one of the things that we talked about when we studied the book of Romans is that God is calling out a people for himself from among Jews and also from what other great group? Gentiles. And that's whom Ruth represents. She represents the Gentile part of the, uh, of the church. Remember, the early church was comprised primarily of Jews who came to realize that Jesus indeed was the Christ. And then Gentiles became... Uh, uh, started coming into the church and then uh, over a period of time then there, was, there were more Gentiles than there were Jews. But it's a, it's a wonderful picture of that and Ephesians chapter 2 really talks about that to a great extent. And then notice also, <clears throat> secondly, that Christ, who is the true Redeemer, not only restores our forfeited inheritance, but also gives Himself to His bride, the church. It, what happened? And that is God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, took on human flesh, stepped out of the portals of glory, stepped out of eternity into time and space, took on human flesh, not, uh, not sinful in any way, but just human flesh. For what reason? So that He could be our kinsman redeemer. He was the one who would be a close relative to us because he was made the way we are made as human beings. He is the one who would come and purchase us for a price. And what would the price be? It would be his own death on the, uh, on the cross of Calvary. He is able. He is, has the right because he is the one who created us. And he clearly was willing. I am, Behold, I delight to do thy will, he said. Oh God. And then finally, remember in part three there, the providence of God overrules, overrules circumstances so that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God's controlling, guiding hand is evident over all of history. The problem is you and I are limited by one lifetime. And so we see very little of what God is doing in the big picture. And one of the great things, one of the great things about reading some of these old genealogies is we begin to see some of the connections. Praise be to God for the way that he worked 
in the life of Naomi and Ruth by being, bringing them into the presence of Boaz. And praise be to God for the way he works in the lives of all of his people today. Whether we come from a Jewish background or whether we come from a Gentile background, that is, if we are his, he brings us to himself. He brings us to himself. He is willing, he is able, he is ready to redeem those who are his. Praise be to God for such a gracious Savior. Father, thanks so much for your kindness and mercy. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this beautiful story of romance and redemption. We know it's a true story of what you did in the life, particularly of Ruth, how you just worked in her life. But Lord, also it's a picture in many ways of what you've done in our lives as you have brought us face to face with the Savior and as you have, uh, as you have worked through all kinds of circumstances, some seemingly good, some seemingly tragic and terrible, and yet you work your way, you work your plan to bring us exactly where you want us to be in order that you might bless us with all the blessings that Christ has. And we're grateful for that. Thank you, Lord. Help us never to forget that. Help us to trust in you and to your kind, benevolent providence as we seek to walk in step with you. We pray in Jesus' name. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax-deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.